Good morning, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors on staff at Grace. We are still in the season of Christmas. The candles lit this morning because we are still celebrating Christmas. The world has moved on. We hit January 1st and everyone turns to their resolutions and um, partying ends. But in the church, in the, uh, in the church calendar, we're still in the season of Christmas. And so uh, if you've, if you've uh, slipped on your resolutions already, that is simply, that is just the faithful thing to do. The Christian year is not done celebrating Christmas yet. Today is the last Sunday of Christmas. So if you need to restart on your resolutions, you've got the perfect opportunity right now uh, to restart those because we're still celebrating Christmas this morning. Whenever I find it hard to believe the story of Christmas, when scripture seems to have lost its inspiration, or I feel like the words of this book can hardly be worth preaching, I come to the first 18 verses of John's gospel like a bird to a fountain. Augustine said in a homily on, on John 1, Consider then, brethren, if perchance John is not one of those mountains concerning whom we sang a little while ago, I have lifted up mine eyes to the mountains, from whence shall my help come? The prologue of John, these, these 18 verses, are one of those mountains that we look to. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him when he cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John begins the story in the garden. This opening prologue to his gospel is an echo of the creation story. All throughout there are references to the creation story. In Genesis 1, God spoke, and that is how God creates. 
God speaks and God creates. The great voice that spoke creation into being in Genesis 1 reverberates through history and finds its echo and fulfillment in the word that the author of our gospel is talking about. He begins in the garden. We are placed in the Garden of Eden by his opening line, in the beginning, because any good Hebrew could finish the sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Except this time, John makes a claim larger than the one that the author of Genesis makes. Anyone who opens their text within the beginning is an audacious writer. It would have been heretical to finish that sentence any way other than in the beginning God created. But John makes a bigger claim. He begins his book, In the Beginning Was. In the beginning was the word. Aquinas, in his commentary on on this text, points out that John tells us when the word was in the beginning, where the word was, and the word was with God, what the word was, the word was God, and how the word was. He was in the beginning with God. And then John tells us that the word, in Greek, the logos, The word, the logic, sort of the through line that ties all of creation together, the thought foundation that lies behind all truth, the word that is with God, the word that was in the beginning, the word that is synonymous with what we call God is also synonymous with the person that John the Baptist testified about, synonymous with the Son. The word became bone and muscle and skin and lived with us. What a claim. The word that caused the garden and walked in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening has taken on flesh. How then shall we live? We've mentioned this idea multiple times in the service already. But how then shall we live? I want to just say two things about how then we might live this year. The word became flesh and lived among us. What God has decided to do in Jesus because of God's great love for the world and all that's in it is to become a character in its not plot, not simply an author writing objectively, but a person in the story. In Jesus, God takes a carabiner and rope and connects himself to us indefinitely so that the fate of human beings is never disconnected from what God has done in Christ. As I was thinking this week about you know, what, what, what does it mean that um, the word has become flesh, that God has connected our fate to his by taking on flesh? I thought of this image of, sometimes you see in movies, I don't even think this is how people climb nowadays, but you'll see this image in movie of tandem climbers, one, um, one above the other, and they're connected by rope and they're, and they're anchored into one another so that if one of them slips, the idea is that their fates are connected together And hopefully, the one who doesn't slip is able to sort of catch the other person by their anchor in the mountain. I'm not a climbing expert, but this is what I imagine uh, God has done to us in Christ, is hooked into our line, connected us with a rope that cannot sever, so that when we fall, when we dangle, when we lose our grip on the mountain, God 
has secured us to himself. And God is not some, um, he's not at the top of a mountain looking down at us, shouting instructions, or at the bottom waiting for us to fall or cheering us on. But God is a fellow climber. God takes on flesh, locks into us so that our fate is connected to his. When you are anchored in Christ, when you know that your climbing partner is the word that was made flesh, you can climb with more courage and confidence I don't know uh, much about climbing, but I did spend one summer as the ropes guy at a summer camp. And of course, at this Christian summer camp, we had uh, you know one obstacle called the leap of faith, which I think is um, I think Christian camps are must be like legally obligated to have a leap of faith because they are basically um, synonymous with Christian camps. Um, so we had the, the 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 leap of faith, which was simply a bar hanging. Um, out in front of a platform that was about 40 feet in the air. And so the kids would climb up the tree, um, climb up the, the little pegs in the tree, and get onto the platform, and they'd have to leap for the bar, the leap of faith. And um, what I began to notice is that um, most of the kids missed it the first time and caught it the second time, which... This is a little counterintuitive because the first time that the kids climb up the leap of faith, they're standing on the edge. They're, 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 they're a little more fearful. They don't, especially if it's their first time doing something like this, they don't really trust the harness. They don't really trust the rope. They don't really trust me or whoever's belaying them at the bottom to actually catch them. They're afraid that it might hurt. Um, and so you'd think that this fear, this distrust would cause you to jump further. That, oh boy, I better get this bar because if I don't, I don't trust the gear that's going to keep me safe. Um, but that was not the case. They'd get out to the edge of the platform and because they were thinking about the fall and thinking about the equipment, they weren't thinking about the bar they were reaching for. And so they were, they were, they were scared and distrustful and timid and they, a little shaky, a little tense. And in the end, they weren't able to jump very far falling, then they would sort of experience the harness, hold them, the rope, kind of gently lower them down to the ground. And having the experience of, 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 of falling, they would be okay with it, scurry back up the tree. Uh, and the second time, most of them were able to catch it because um, they, they were no longer thinking about the harness and the fall and the person belaying them and the rope, they trusted that because they'd experienced it. And so now they were actually finally able to look out at the bar. You'd think that the fear would have caused them to, to, to reach even further for the bar, but that's not the case. They needed the security of trusting what was going to hold them. The word becomes flesh and lives among us. So many people... Uh, are longing for an anchor, longing for something consistent, longing for something to hold them, something that they can trust. And without it, sometimes I think people think that they'll be, they'll be more free, they'll be more on their own, they'll be able to, to live more freely without these things holding them down. But the anchor that we have in God ought to allow us to be more courageous, to take more risks, to be more brave. The word becomes flesh and lives among us. God walked in the garden 
with Adam and Eve and by Christ's spirit, God walks among us. And we have this assurance, this partner in the faith, this rope and harness connected to us, this promise that we cannot go anywhere that God has not gone. We cannot face any fear that God has not already overcome. The first word so often to the believer is, do not be afraid, or to the unbeliever, do not be afraid. Be courageous. Jump. Trust the rope. The word became flesh and lived among us. The next line of that verse, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Glory is a theme in John. Jesus doesn't just, um, isn't just the word made flesh. Jesus is the word made flesh in a particular way, uh, in a way that reflects the glory of God. So, so this theme of glory is going to come up over and over and over again, and it's leading us all towards the cross, um, which is where John will depict Jesus in his full glory as sort of this, this sacrificial, um, self-giving love. This is the culmination of the glory of God. In, in, in Jesus' prayer with his disciples in John 17, verse 5, Jesus prays this, And now you glorify me, Father, in your own presence with the glory I had in your presence before the world existed. And I think there are two things worth noting here. Um, first of all, there's kind of this callback to John 1 where Jesus is talking about his existence with the Father prior to creation. But he also mentions glory, that God is about to reveal God's glory through Jesus. And Jesus, remarkably, is referencing the crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross is the fullest revelation of the glory of God. The glory of God is self-giving, sacrificial love. That's the glory that existed before the creation of the world. It is that love that prompts and motivates creation in Genesis 1 and recreation in Christ that we read about in John 1. The word becomes flesh and it takes on the shape of the glory of God, which is self-giving love. The word is made flesh and lives among us. We have an anchor, we have a partner. The same God who existed before creation walks with us. And we have seen his glory. The courage and risk that we inherit from the promises of Christ lead us to walk in the path of glory, which is self-giving love. The risks we are to take, the jumps we are to make, the bar, so to speak, that we are to leap towards is always in the direction of self-giving love. I think sometimes we, we, we define risk by, um, you know, no risk, no reward. Um, and so we make risks, but only very calculated risks that ultimately we're sure are going to uh, cause us to reap some reward. The risk, the courage, the bravery that we are asked to have as partners with God doesn't always come back in full return in the same way that we want, for example, our financial risks to come back. Um, they require the risks that God often requires us are, are risks of vulnerability, um, risks of sacrifice, risks of self-giving love in the pattern of God's glory. And I was thinking about, you know, what does it look like for us to be, you know, 
risk takers in the path of, of, of John chapter 1. And I thought of the work of Brene Brown, and um, particularly her, her work, Daring Greatly, where she sort of redefines greatness and courage um, in, I think, ways that line up pretty well with what John is talking about. In Daring Greatly, she writes, Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. She continues, Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. I would add that the path to vulnerability, love, courage, is the course up the side of the mountain that Jesus leads us into. And I think Brene Brown's work on being vulnerable and showing up and being courageous resonates so deeply uh, in Christian circles because it really has a resonance with what John is claiming, that the Word becomes flesh, that we've seen His glory, and it becomes flesh in a particular way. We're asked to take risks in a particular direction, to jump um, in a particular direction as Christians. A couple weeks ago, we uh, heard the text from Matthew 1, where Matthew um, names Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew bookends his gospel with this prophecy in Matthew 1, Emmanuel, God with us. And he ends in chapter 28 with the verse, and look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Bookends with this idea of God with us. John bookends his gospel as well. He bookends his gospel with the garden. He begins the gospel with the audacious words, in the beginning, and places us in the garden. And he ends his gospel in the garden as well. After the women have gone to the tomb, and only Mary Magdalene is left, she sees a man walking, and John tells us that she supposes him to be the gardener. Mary believes that she sees the gardener. And John never corrects her or says that she is wrong because he wants us to know that she isn't. Supposing him to be the gardener. And Mary is right. The word that was in the beginning with God, the word that was God, the word that was in the beginning with God had been made flesh and walked one more time through the garden. By his spirit, the word that was made flesh walks with us. When you look back on 2020, when we look back on 2020, I pray that we will have lived lives of courage and vulnerability that follow after the pattern of Jesus. As you think about where God is calling you in this new year, I hope that you... Um, Pray with the confidence and the assurance of having an anchor and that you take risks in the direction of love. Um, that's our prayer for, for this new year. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.